Entrepreneurship is more like running into a wall until you knock it down. And German-born Florian Hagenbuch has committed to making sure that the wall stays down for those coming after him. Florian founded Loft to digitize the real estate market and make it accessible to millions of Brazilians dreaming of owning a home. Their latest funding round bumped up their nearly $3 billion valuation. With an angel portfolio of over 100 companies, his trajectory naturally evolves in the formation of a VC fund, Canary, a pre-seed and seed stage investment firm in Latin America that now has over $150 million in assets under management. In this episode, Florian goes over the life cycle of disruption opportunities, how fast-growing companies can accelerate careers, the potential of addressable markets in Latin America, angel investing as a way to give back. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam! Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice, so I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Thank you for making the time between all of your busy undertakings that you have, world domination. But um, thanks for making the time. It's great to chat with you. I mean, we've known each other for a while now, and so it's cool to see all this ecosystem kind of flourish and, and see that happen. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me. It's um, it's always good to chat with you. And uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's been a long way uh, since our start back in, you know, I think for you it was 09, for us it was 2011. So it's cool yeah. to see see it come to fruition now, for sure. Yeah, yeah Princhi is a lot different than Loft, like <laughs> as a business. And for those that, you know, don't know the Princhi story, maybe just a quick summary of that. And then talk about just like, maybe your perspective and why you decided to start Loft and also the kind of juxtaposition of like the print on demand business versus real estate tech company or prop tech. Yeah, totally. I, th- I think our, you know, or my entrepreneurial trajectory isn't, isn't like they sometimes talk about in the blogs and the books where it's like, here's a problem that I had and here's how I'm going to fix it. It's, it's a little less linear than that. And I always like to share it, but the real big motivator back in 2011 was uh, me and Mate, who was my co-founder at Princhi and then also at Loft and also at Canary. We were kind of like, okay, we want to quit finance and we want to do something entrepreneurial. That was like the, the big thing. Uh, and we wanted to do something in Brazil because as you well remember, Brian, it was a, as a time where, you know, the, the Christ was like flying off the, the magazine covers and it was very a very cool time of like the early internet phase and a lot of foreigners doing stuff in brazil so it just felt like the right move uh, for us especially for me having grown up here uh but when we moved down um initially what we wanted to do was something more in the fintech space like our idea was to do something in lending something with unsecured lending over the internet like get a loan in 15 minutes kind of thing and the reality is that or the the true story is that we just got a little scared by the regulatory environment at that time um and you know that's when like the really risk averse uh, you know german side of us kicked in and we're like well we're okay with a lot of risk we're not okay uh taking risk that that we don't control and it was like at a time when you know the Heseta federal was like raiding offices and like people had criminal 
you know, lawsuits against him and still have him, I think, to this day. Uh, some of the entrepreneurs back then, who are the true heroes, by the way, you know, me and you were just, you know, riding along, I guess. Um, but we got scared. But then we were already in a position where we had already quit our careers in finance. We had already moved to Brazil and we had to kind of decide on something. And as I mentioned, it was like a lot of, you know, foreigners doing e-commerce companies at that time. And, uh, you know, we looked at e-commerce and my dad had come from the printing industry and he kept telling us about this like printing e-commerce uh, business model and idea and why we don't look at that and have a stab at that. And so what we did is like we literally uh, took that and had a look and we kind of saw that nobody was really doing this in Brazil and that it should be an opportunity to build something in that industry. And ultimately, that's what we that's what we set out to do. Um, so we, so we built Printree off of this, I guess, this energy. Um, and the cool thing with Printree for, for us was it was, you know, a story that had a, had a full cycle. It had a beginning, uh, a mid like scaling phase, and then also an exit into a strategic player. It wasn't a huge outcome. It was, you know, for all intents and purposes and what we're seeing now in the market, like a relatively small success, but it was a success nevertheless. And for us, you know, definitely financially very rewarding. Um, but when that cycle was, you know, over, it was pretty clear to us that we would uh, take another step at building something, um, building another company. And so for us, once that was kind of decided, it was really about two things. It's like what space and where to, to start the company. And I'll start with where first, because that was, I think, a deeper reflection. Um, we were seeing a lot of people uh, move to the States to build like their next company there, like Enrique and, and Pedro from Brex, for example. They, they had just gone through that process and they were like, well, we're going to Silicon Valley because we want to build something really big and we think that's the place to be. And, you know, I think we, we took a little bit of a contrarian route there because we saw, I think, stuff that nobody else really was seeing that much because we were being always like entrepreneurs, but also investors. And we were seeing two things really happen. One was, you know, capital availability shifting quite, quite, quite massively starting in 2017, 18. There were early signs that this was about to happen because, you know, 99 had just had the exit to DD. That was a big number. And so the big criticism back then was always, well, Brazil tech is great, but there's no liquidity. That was always a big criticism that everybody had to hear. There's no IPOs, there's no exits. Like, And 99, the exit to 99 was a really big milestone in that sense because it was a big headline number and it, uh, it proved the liquidity point. And then obviously shortly thereafter, a series of IPOs started happening. Um, you know, Stone happened, PagSeguro happened. I, I forget what year is, but it was kind of like around that, that, that same time. And so it was clear to us that capital would be available to fuel, you know, big ideas. Um, and I think the validation of that really started coming once SoftBank came with the whole vision or the Latam fund and like the 5 billion. And that was like more than like, I don't know, the last 10 years of venture capital in the space, in the whole region. And so it, it was quite clear that capital was going to be there. But then more importantly, I think uh, on the other end was, um, there was a talent shift happening and accelerating very, very strongly. And we saw more and more people leave traditional career paths like banking or, you know, law or whatever else and wanting to join startups or start companies. And we were seeing that as investors quite actively as well, that the quality of the entrepreneurs coming through uh, was getting better and better. Um, and so we said, well, if that's true, then the two main ingredients to building something big uh, we're going to be there, the, the, the capital and the talent. And we thought that given our you know, background, um, our reputation, our skills, that we would be very well positioned to, to benefit from that availability of capital and, um, and talent. And so that's when we decided to do something big out of, out of Brazil, and like basically doing it based out of Sao Paulo. Um, and once that was decided, then it was really about uh, what to do and I think different from other entrepreneurs, very like I guess uh, you know German kind of approach to it. And it was like, well, you know, what are industries that are large enough to really, you know, support 
uh, company that has ambitions to be worth, you know, a billion, five billion, ten billion, fifty billion one day. And when you look at that from a you know current picture standpoint and not a photograph, and you don't make bets on what's going to happen in the future, there weren't that many industries that that could support that. Um, so we narrowed it down to like real estate, insurance, um, and there were there were one or two other things. And ultimately, we settled on on real estate because it just felt like the founder market fit was quite high. And founder market fit is this concept of you know the founder and their idea matching well together and meshing well together. And I think you know having worked with online printing, it's very much an online to offline experience. It's very much an operationally heavy, but also you know somewhat of a technology uh, business. We felt, you know, we had a high founder market fit with with the real estate segment, and just also personally, it was a, a space and an industry that we enjoyed. Um, you know, to this day, there's only two things that I like to invest in, which are startups and real estate. I'm doing crypto now too, but I consider that kind of like startup on 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 steroids, if you will. Um, but it's really that's still my investment philosophy, and so it was it was a really good fit. And that's when we decided to do something in real estate and, you know, more specifically starting with the high buying kind of business model here in Brazil. That's awesome, man. You touched on a couple of important ingredients, talents, capital, and then you obviously focused on an enormous market. And I think that those are, those are key things when entrepreneurs are thinking about building a business. A lot of times there's the whole, like, you've got to do something that you're strictly passionate about. And you can take the counter example of that. You can learn to be passionate about a lot of things. I mean, I probably when you picked up that, you know, really nice apartment that I visited in Oscar Freire and, you know, your wife designed it super nice. You're like, actually, I kind of like real estate. It's pretty fun. And you had this background, you know, in finance. Actually, the story behind that is much better, Brian. I don't even know if you know Tell this, me. but we found that apartment on Viva Real. And I think it was because Geraldine was going to speak to you guys about a position, but I'm not really sure about that part, but I oh, feel yeah. like there was yeah, something yeah, like that. Right. I had lunch with her and she, she left 99 and that's exactly right. That's funny. Yeah. So I'm glad. But it gets better. But, but, but it gets better. The apartment that I bought it from, but that uh, the person that I bought the apartment from was a person that was kind of doing the eye buying business model on a very small scale. He was a flipper. Like he would oh. buy these apartments, renovate them and then sell them turnkey. So I was experiencing this value proposition of, hey, here's a turnkey solution for someone that wants convenience, right? So that's pretty yeah. cool. And what's even better is I experienced firsthand the difficulties of the market when I found out, you know, two years later, that there were, I think, something like 30 square meters of the apartment just missing. Like the documentation and the real square meterage didn't match so i was like okay mm -hmm. this is a great this is a great you know confluence of factors uh that is that is funny to tell i don't think i've ever told the story uh but now you're getting my my juices flowing <laughs> i am kind of connected to the, to your story a little bit because i mean i remember the whatsapp group that we started back in the day and you're, you guys like hey we're thinking about starting kind of an open door for latin america we even discussed like you know me joining in the process would have been a, a really nice windfall for me but I didn't do it, <laughs> um, but I um, think that, and that's a really humbling experience when you're an incumbent, you're building a business. Like I never imagined the time when I would actually become an, an incumbent business. And yeah. it's really, you just have so much respect for guys like Mark, you know, Marcos Galperin that have been doing it for a couple decades and reinventing themselves. And it's like an incredible reminder that like tech moves quickly and I always thought that what would disrupt us was like a mobile, like some kind of mobile solution that was like purely mobile or something. And just, it's fun to imagine what these future industries look like and how they're constantly being reshaped. And I think these cycles, Brian, are tightening, you know, as we speak, I think, you know, take Henry Ford and Ford Motor Company. They had like, I don't know, maybe 50 to 100 years of a, of a head start and hard to be disrupted. And auto industry is, I think, a little bit of a, of an outlier uh, until I guess Tesla comes along. But then you take companies in the early, you know, nineties or, or late nineties, early two thousands. And I mean, Mercado Livre, how much of a, you know, head start do they have 20 years, maybe 25, something like that. Facebook things also like in the 20 to 25 year, like protection window, 
then you take our companies and it's like, if we're lucky, it's like 10, 10 to 20. Um, and I think things are accelerating very, very fast. And these, these things are narrowing to potentially a place where companies will get disrupted if they're not adaptive uh, every two, three years, uh, eventually. So something I think about a lot as well and huge respect for the entrepreneurs that, that sticks through with it. Absolutely, man. I mean, this should also be an exciting kind of epiphany for those like people that are stuck in finance, like you said before, because there's so many opportunities. I don't think everyone should be an entrepreneur. Like I don't come from that kind of school of thought, but definitely there's insane amount of talent that has shifted from working in banking, consulting, law, whatever, whatever the, the profession is to either starting something or joining a startup. It's amazing to look at where it was 10 years ago and where it is today. What do you think that looks like in the next five or 10 years? And how can we accelerate more people being in the, the economy of building versus the, the entrenched companies that aren't innovating as much? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in these like milestones, you know, that like cause massive shifts and changes. And I'd like to think of even Loft as being one of those tectonic shifts to the market, because I think we proved a few things that up until that point hadn't hadn't been proven, hadn't been shown to be possible, which I think is quite cool. Uh, but particularly, I think the big accelerant that we're looking at in the very short term, uh, quite honestly, is the new bank IPO. Um, because, you know, when you look at 99, you know, in 2017, it was great, but it was great for very few people. Um, you know, the, the option pool was quite limited. The number of investors on the cap table was quite limited. The amount of capital that had been raised was limited. The one billion exit is, I think, if you if you look at you know uh, everything that's happening in the world now, is it's considered kind of small, um, and all of that you know gets I would say you know upended by what's happening with the new bank IPO. And I think the one big game changing thing for me there is going to be you know the massive amount of people that are going to make real you know life changing sums of money. And, you know, what happens and, and what Nubank proves is that you can get off of a linear kind of like financial path and you can have like a step change event. And I think that's going to be a huge accelerant to whatever trend was already happening in terms of capital and talent availability and especially talent, because, you know, you're going to have, you know, uh, relatively young people and relatively junior professionals making a lot of money. Um rightfully and, you know, happily and deservedly so. And I think that's going to be a huge catalyst to, you know, the stories that we as entrepreneurs and investors always tell of like, you know, the fortunes and the riches and the success that can be achieved um, if if we make it through, if we make it to that, you know, exit or IPO, uh, you know, opportunity. And I'm personally like very excited about that because it's truly what I believe in and it's truly going to be you know one of those you know you know watershed moments uh although i think it's going to be really interesting how that's going to you know affect the competition uh between startups for talent which is already getting a lot more you know uh competitive it will i think get a little bit worse too but uh, i tend to look at the positive side and i'm excited about that yeah it's funny you mentioned that i mean i don't know if david will listen to this but yuri my co-founder, who are CTO, and we're hiring a few engineers, and he worked with someone that now at Newbank. And so, you know, he called them and said, hey, we're hiring. And I had a call with him. And then I was like, so what's your situation like? He's like, well, I've got this stock option and I dug in more. I was like, man, stick around. Like, <laughs> don't come over to our little operation, you know, just yet. Because the reality is like that, that's an incredible opportunity, an incredible company to be part of. And going through that, you know, the financial windfall that's there. And so, you know, I actually gave the advice of the, the engineer to, to stick around. I do think it'll get more competitive and it has gotten more competitive, I mean, dramatically, but the talent pool has also increased, right? Do you remember hiring product managers in 2013? They were a bunch of project managers. There, was, there wasn't any, any product yeah. managers that actually managed growth and, and had, you know, kind of a metrics-driven framework for like building, building products. It was more, you know, managing deliverables and releases. And that's, something that's uh, changed dramatically. Yeah, it's product managers or data scientists that were really like 
business analysts or BI analysts, and then you know, you name exactly. it. Yeah, whatever you know, startup profession there was, there was nobody. Yeah, it's evolved the roles, and that, and I think that speaks to what you were saying earlier in terms of there's going to be a whole new wave of talent that is born in all these companies. I mean, I've seen it with with Loft, I've seen it with Rappi, like. I mean, these people are also going out and starting companies that have been early people in, in Loft. They're able to do well. And it's one thing I really have a lot of respect for with the Rappi guys is that they've kind of like graduated a ton of entrepreneurs, you know? And that's something that is, from one standpoint, it's kind of like, it's hard not to be kind of like greedy and be like, oh, stick around and keep building this. But if you see someone with that kind of brio no olio, I don't even remember if I can speak Portuguese, but, you know, shine in their eye where it's like, you don't want to hold them back and be like, hey, you know, don't go, don't go pursue your dream of building something you know i think that's a great uh, topic and something i believe in a lot um i believe that each person's journey is different like to your point um i think a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs it's like this entrepreneur term but i think very few people are actually you know set out uh and uh have the skills to be successful at it and Unfortunately, one of the only ways of finding out is trying. So I do like the fact that there's more opportunities and more capital so people, more people can try it, which I think is very important. But I have huge respect for people that say, and, I, and there's a lot of people uh, like that at Loft that say, like, I, I, I never want to be in your shoes, Florian. Uh, I want to be <laughs> entrepreneurial, but I don't want to be in your shoes. Like, I just don't want to. And I completely get that because, as you know, there's, there's a dark days. Um, you know, buck stops with us. Um, and so I have a lot of respect for that. So I think the journey is individual. So that's one thing. And then I believe in cycles. You know, it's very clear to me that, you know, uh, people go through cycles and in, in, in life, uh, personally or professionally. And you, you can see it very often that, you know, there's a cycle uh, of someone at Loft and that someone completes a cycle and the next cycle might be outside of Loft. Um, but our philosophy and especially my philosophy personally is I want to, you know, build relationships over the long term, And I want to be supportive of these people, regardless of whether they're within loft or outside of loft. Um, but I want to support as many people doing constructive things uh, as, as possible. And I really believe in this theory of multiplication, um, uh, you know, that also we share at Endeavor and, you know, basically having a positive impact. And I, I really believe in the private and the tech sector as driving positive impact for the country. And it's just not doable within just one umbrella, right? Um, so you ultimately have to choose what, what's more important to you, the impact to the whole or, you know, the impact, uh, I guess, economically to yourself. Um, and I think you can have both um, in some sort of measure. And that's that's what we believe in. And so... I think the other learning is this concept of cycles. Um, and it's really hard to have cycles that are ultra long, especially nowadays. Uh, I, I have respect for people that, that have ultra long cycles, whether they're entrepreneurs like Marcos Galperin or whether it's, you know, employees that, you know, stay from seed all the way to IPO and beyond and huge respect, but it's more the exception than the rule, right? Statistically speaking. And so um, I think that's the other learning in, this concept of like, hey, we can work together in many different shapes and forms. It doesn't have to be just this traditional, like, hey, I'm the boss, I'm the employer. Hey, you're the subordinate and the employee. It's not the only way of, you know, working together and creating value together. Yeah, there's a concept from Ben Kaznoka, founder of Village Global, and he wrote a book with Reid Hoffman, and he just published a book recently. And he talks about tours of duty, the way to think about it is like you're joining and you're going to be this block of time. You're going to contribute tons of value, but the founders and the management team and everyone that's part of it also is invested in you. You become an alumni essentially of, of the organization. And then, you know, there's yep. this kind of mutual uh, support. And so that's how I, I like to think about it at Latitude where, you know, we've got people coming in. We don't expect everyone to be here for 20 years and we want to see people succeed afterwards. And so, it's just kind of like spend the time and and build value and you're building value for yourself. Usually your individual stock price, if you join Loft at 50 people and then you know you scaled and you had much more responsibility in that process, your individual stock value as a contributor or a future entrepreneur or whatever, or an investor yeah. or whatever it is, 
it goes way up really fast. Yeah, totally. And I think this concept of the alumni is super important. And when you take really a long-term view on relationships and reputation and value creation, that really aligns you with anyone that's at the at the company that you're currently building, right? Because for me, I always tell this to people at Loft, like, if you leave Loft, I want you to leave uh, to a place that will set you up for success and that will make you successful because it ultimately also reflects positively on, on what we're doing here now and in the future, right? And so, yeah, I think, I think it's a really good concept and uh, I really like the alignment when you have a long-term horizon. Yeah, when I when I was building Viva and I was in Colombia and I decided to close the Colombia office and move to Brazil, I remember first time CEO was like, I have to fire people like this sucks. I, at least what are these people going to do? And I ended up making the decision. And then a few months later, like everyone was working either at Facebook, Mercado Libre, like had all these like better opportunities. And that's when I kind of realized that we were actually a launch pad for other people. And it's something that accelerates your your lessons and learning and just professionalism if you work at a fast-growing company. So I like that perspective a lot. But I can't say it doesn't hurt, you know, sometimes when someone you like and you value and is really important to the organization leaves and says like, hey, you always say it's okay if people leave. Yeah, exactly. I can't say that it doesn't hurt occasionally. Um, yeah. but, uh, but then you got to take a step back, look at it from a long-term and, you know, big picture yeah. view and, and it's fine. It kind of, it can sting. I've, I've been there. There's something that I recalled and kind of going back to this conversation of the Nubank IPO and more wealth creation, more successful startups, more exits, more liquidity. I remember having a chat with you and Lori from Kavak. We were on a little, you know, with Lavka. And one of the topics that we brought up was this concept of like entrepreneurs or even executives at companies, angel investing. And would love your perspective because you're you're one of these early people that like, you were a really active angel investor. Now, I wish that I had like paid attention right when you guys started investing. I was probably like a year or two after you and I started investing a little bit also. But you and Mate, you guys were like always just super on it with the investing side. There's a kind of a misconception in my opinion. And I think we share this opinion, but I, I want to hear from your perspective about the advantages of investing while you're building a company. Because many investors have the mentality where it's like, hey, that's a big distraction. What do you say to that, to the investor that might kind of look down upon that? Yeah, totally. It is a difficult concept. And, you know, I won't say that, um, I think my position is, I think it's very, very beneficial for entrepreneurs to be investing for a multitude of reasons. And I can share some of, you know, our learnings here, but, uh, I definitely think it's positive, but I think there's risks, right? And uh, it's funny that you mentioned that you wish you had paid attention because my recollection is uh, you knew what you were doing. We were always doing these deals together. And I feel like I even learned a lot from you at the time. I learned a lot from Julio at the time, who, you know, people I look up to and I think um, taught me a lot. Um, I think what we ended up doing, I think we just really believed in, in, uh, in that concept of like giving back and scaling that. And eventually that became Canary. And it's funny because sometimes investors will ask us, hey, like, how do you spend your time, Florian? Like, you have this loft thing and you have this canary thing. And it's funny, but, you know, by building canary, we ultimately build a really, really awesome structure so that I don't have to spend pretty much any time on it. Uh, and we can multiply, you know, the impact and the ideas that we have and, you know, foment uh, this concept of, you know, value creation and um, entrepreneurship. Um, but where I think it makes sense for entrepreneurs to invest, it's a way of you staying in the flow, right? So one, one, you know, very popular, I think, uh, concept is like, Hey, I'm a prop tech entrepreneur and I'm going to invest in other prop techs, uh, in my region or elsewhere. Like we do this a lot at Loft, um, not at Loft, but like as I guess founders and CEOs, co-CEOs of Loft, um, and it allows you to build a relationship that goes beyond the, you know, once a month kind of catch up with the entrepreneur and like, hey, how are things? It's, it creates uh, an economic link, right, between you and the founder. Uh, you want him to succeed. There's 
that there's more than you know just a you know low touch relationship. There's the, the shared risk uh, between parties, and I think this creates you know better alignment and more more access in a way. So um, it's it's a way of knowing what's going on in the world of learning um, almost what's going on in the world in your space. So that's one strategy that I see happening quite a bit, investing to learn. Um, another thing that has happened to me quite frequently is that, you know, small angel investments have turned into acquisitions. So we just announced our entrance into Mexico, uh, by acquiring a company called true home Well, true home. I invested in personally, um, uh, as an angel, I've known Raul for three years. Uh, the guy is great. His team is great. Uh, and I had a really unique perspective on seeing him build the company for the last three years as an investor. And you can say my, my you know, shareholders or my investors could say, well, I don't really see how that benefits us. But in, in a way, the access to the deal and the access to the market and being able to do this kind of acquisition, uh, I don't know how many percent of that are because of this angel investment, but I would say a big chunk of, of, of that value was because we built that relationship through a small investment. Um, so there's something else that I see is, is, is very good. Um, and then obviously there is, you know, I think entrepreneurs in an age of social media and the creator economy and, and whatnot, entrepreneurs have brands, right? And I think it's important for you uh, in a very competitive capital and talent market to stand out. And one of the ways you can stand out is by, you know, working on your brand and investing can, can strengthen your brand. Um, and so that's another, you know, piece of that strategy that I see working out quite well. Um, so I think there's a, many different reasons why this makes sense and, and can make sense. Uh, but I also do think it has to be carefully managed you know, from a, from a sizing perspective, it's a lot of work. And that's, I think, one thing that people underestimate. It's a lot of work. I'm fortunate enough that I have this, you know, team and structure at Canary that supports me in being able to do these things with, with relatively little overhead. But you and I, we know when we do these things personally, it's like sign the docs and, you know, update the spreadsheet and like all these things. And then sometimes people will need your help and you don't have the time to, to help them. So I think you have to like kind of like balance the, the the upside and the positives with some of the of the negatives and no one else better to judge where you are on that on that scale than you as the entrepreneur yourself and being honest with yourself um, in terms of you know are you distracted or not or are you are you focused on the core business so but that's the way I think about it. Yeah, and I think you, you've been successful. You've been able to balance that. And I know that like at the heart of it, you like to help founders and you, me and you both agree that like one of the things that's super motivating is just seeing that ecosystem elevate. Of course, like both of us like to make good investments and make money in our investments. And one aspect of like you could say, besides the kind of ecosystem building, the gratification you get when like a founder, I got a message today right before this interview and the founder, she's like, I just raised my round, you know, and, and it. Super cool to see that because you're able to help and be a, a support in that process. But also, yeah. like, you're kind of monetizing your your experience, right? Like, I mean, in some ways, because, yeah. like, how oftentimes are you, now that you've been doing this for over a decade, where you're just like, okay, seen this movie before, kind of know what to do. It's kind of effortless. And so yeah. I think that you're kind of being compensated for that and you're doing some good also. Totally. I love the doing good aspect. And, you know, for me, it goes even sometimes like the recognition from the founders or people telling you that you, you know, impacted them positively is amazing. I have a story that I love sharing is like the, the lady, the, the cleaning lady that works here with us. Uh, she uses a company called Boozer. Um, yep. And, you know, Boozer, and, and she tells me how much she loves Boozer because it's like makes her trips cheaper. She's from Bella de Zonchi and like all this stuff, you know, and Boozer only exists because uh, I guess I was the only person in the whole market crazy enough to give, you know, Pato at the time 500K to pay legal bills because there was no business, no nothing, no PowerPoint. All there was was like an ambition and a legal bill. <laughs> and we, we were like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. We'll do that. Um, and so 
if I think about that moment and the amount of people that were positively impacted by that, just because, you know, it's me, but it's also my partners were able to take the risk uh, on, on some, some founder and his crazy idea. I mean, it's very, very rewarding. And it's hard to say like, Hey, how does that benefit me in the ultra short term? I think it goes beyond that in many ways. So anyways, I think it's very, very rewarding ultimately to do it. And I think the money, and and I think that's the thing that entrepreneurs have to think about. It's like the upside you have in running your own business. If you're successful, if you build a unicorn company and beyond is so much bigger, but, but so much massively bigger. And I think Nubank, another really great uh, lesson from their story is the power of compounding at a large scale, right? It's like we're tossing around these numbers like, hey, I mean, someone told me that two years ago, Nubank was a $2 billion valuation um, and it's going to go public at hopefully 100. You know, even if it's not 100, it's 70 or 50, whatever it is, the compounding at that scale um, is like so massive that that's something that entrepreneurs can't lose their side of. Um, and sometimes I get lost in that because I really like the helping and the, you know, the positive impact, but Mate is always very astute and reminding me of, you know, the relative, um, compounding effects. And I think that's, that's where the entrepreneur has to balance, you know, their distraction versus accretion math as well. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, it is rewarding to see the success there and you can revel in the, the good feelings of helping someone and also make money at the same time. There's nothing wrong with that. And for those that are listening that haven't heard the, uh, the interview with Pato, it's episode 16 here on the Latitude podcast. You can hear how he started out selling poop emoji uh, pillows. That's uh, a kind of a fun episode. Fofo, he, he's- Fofo store. <laughs> yeah. He also had a parking lot business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Quite a character and uh, amazing business. And it's incredible to see. He talked about you and how you guys backed him early on was a crazy idea. And, and that's, I think, something that we hopefully are seeing more of now that we have more success. I mean, I think that if you look at the evolution of a, of a tech ecosystem, one of the reasons why I remember having a conversation with Freddie Vega from Platzi and he's like, regardless of what you think about Clubhouse, he said Clubhouse can never be built in Latin America because the risk profile of investors and all that. But when you have incredible successes coming out, I mean, everyone thought Newbank was a crazy idea, right? And so all of a sudden it wasn't crazy uh, when they started getting crazy traction. So that's enables the ecosystem that's more mature for really truly venture capital, not private equity, you know, 2008 um, I'm going to invest in this company and it's it's going to 5x and there's like very low risk involved. So that's an exciting thing. Do you think that we're going to see more innovation happening that other people around the world will copy built in Brazil and Latin America? And, and are you seeing any signs of that with some of the companies that you've seen crop up? I know that you're not on Canary full time, but I'm sure you get kind of up to speed yeah. on what's what's happening. Yeah, so it's it's a great question. So I think, um, yeah, the the VC backable track is getting you know more and more proven. Uh, I think one thing we did as Loft was, we, we I think we showed people you can do this at a like breakneck speed. Um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a lot of risk, but you do have the conditions to be able to take this type of risk now in Latin America. And so if you are the type of entrepreneur that wants to and can take this type of risk, then you, you should, you know, so that's great. And what I'm seeing slowly starting to happening is like, you know, these very successful companies here in the region, they're kind of already like beasts of their own uh, in a way. You know, I'll, I'll talk about Nubank first, but it's like, you know, what I think is fascinating uh, about what they do is like, they're the best at what they do in the, in the world. You know, it, it's not like, oh, they're the, you know, second derivative copycat of some U.S. neobank. Like, they're bigger. They're better. I don't have the exact numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're more profitable. And, you know, um, they're really paving the way for everyone else to follow, whether it's Revolut in the U.K. or N26 in Germany or Chime in the U.S. And I think that's, like, really, really fascinating. Um, or when you take Loft, it's like, Loft is not open door for Latin America. It might have, you know, started like that with like the, the wedge. It was never division. If you look at the seed deck and maybe we should put, publish our seed deck one day. 
to show that it, it was never the vision to be like the open door for Latam. Um, it was just the start of a much bigger thing. And today when investors ask us, like, what are you guys? It's like, it's actually kind of hard to, to explain. And, you know, American investors frequently are very used to companies growing within a niche because the U.S. market is so competitive that you need to find like your niche. It just turns out every niche in the U.S. is like 100 billion. <laughs> so like you can really grow into that without much of a problem. Um, and in Brazil, you have this opportunity to become more horizontal, but we're like, you know, we are, you know, yeah, we have elements of open door. We have elements of, of a silo, uh, or a baker in China, but we're also, you know, the largest mortgage broker in the country, which is really like rocket mortgage or a better mortgage in the U S. So it's like that kind of concept. And I'm seeing that more and more happen with the successful, um, later stage companies like Hotmart is an example of that. Like it doesn't, it doesn't exist much, you know, outside of Brazil or outside of Latam from, from what I know at least. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. I think the piece that's missing is taking true, true, true innovation risk, like in its purest form. Right. Um, and I think it's a question of time until that starts happening, because what you need to happen for that is it needs to, the, the conditions need to be there for you to be able to have those kind of stories. And I think one thing is the capital and the risk, but another thing is like founders who've been through it two, three, four, five times or product managers that have been at it for 10, 15 years. And these things don't really exist yet. But in my mind, you know, when you think about, for example, social media, there, there's no reason whatsoever why this, the biggest social media company shouldn't be Brazilian. Like it just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And in fact, you know, Mike Krieger is Brazilian and one of the co-founders of Instagram, which I think is really cool. But it wasn't born in in, in Brazil quite yet. But it will happen. Um, it's just a question of time. And uh, I think we're not really seeing that much yet. It's still a little bit ingrained in, in the region, this like copy or inferiority complex like whatever you want to call it uh, but for me it's uh it's really a question of time and i think there's a couple of things happening like crypto and things like that could, that could just like flip everything upside down again and then you see an acceleration of that happening and kind of out of nowhere uh, but i'm a big believer that it's a question of time i, I liked uh, a couple to unpack a few things that you said you know first off it's interesting how you know, a lot of these things start with like open door brazil and then all of a sudden, you know, if you look at Latin America, there's an opportunity to build the entire infrastructure, right? You can become the operating system more because it is less competitive and you can build massive moats if you're horizontal and you're servicing the, the buyer and then also providing the financing where that stuff is, is just difficult. And I think Kavak is a good example of that, right? Like they, they start doing the car sales, they do the inspections, they do financing, all that stuff. So, you know, in lofts in, in real estate. So, I think that's one thing that's hard for U.S. investors to understand. And in fact, like I think that I I had two of a, like a, a narrow uh, look at, at in, when I built my business, reflecting back, because I just looked around the world and I'm like, REA Group is only does this and right move in these more developed markets. But that's the beauty of emerging markets. And if you can be creative fast, you can start by as James Courier from you know, NFX describes breathing new energy into an existing business. I think that's a really good framework to think about getting quick traction on something. But then if you have that kind of, you throw the innovator's dilemma by the, the wayside and you start disrupting yourself or going tangential once you have really strong traction, you can build a lot bigger business than you would otherwise. So it's very rare to have that opportunity in Latin, you know, in Latin America and probably in Southeast Asia, you see some similar opportunities just that doesn't exist in, in the US or maybe Europe. Or, or maybe it does, but maybe the environment is just so conditioned on not acting that way. Um, or you just don't have to. I think what happens in LATAM is there's this like rule that I think about a lot, which is, you know, really strong entrepreneurs, they, they, they expand TAM, right? This, this, this notion of you expand your addressable market uh, by, by sheer, you know, execution, you know, ability. Um, and I think a lot of what happens in, in LATAM in the sense of going more horizontal is quite frankly, because the vertical is not big enough, honestly, uh, because mm -hmm. sometimes we do forget, you know, LATAM is still, uh, relatively poor. 
right? Uh, on a GDP per capita, from a GDP per capita standpoint, um, you know, let M, like Brazil is, it's just 200 million people. Like it's not a billion. Um, and so these things, they have like ways of, you know, I think figuring themselves out. And I think what really happens, the horizontality comes from obviously like really strong execution, but ultimately also entrepreneurs realizing that they need to expand their TAM if their ambition is very big, right? Uh, because I think there's nothing wrong with you settling on just one piece and being very dominant in that one piece. Um, but I think that's something that, that, uh, that, uh, you know, happens quite a bit. Um, so Anyways, just reflections, I guess. How do you think about ge geographic expansion? Like you benefit from a large market, right? Like real estate is it's the largest asset class in the world. So it's not like you're, you're dealing in, in something in small numbers. But how have you, you made this acquisition and, you know, you don't have to tell us your whole playbook and plan. But like, what was the timing now? Like why do you do a deal now? And Mexico is the obvious market. But like, what was the discussion like around between you and Mate and your board, maybe? Yeah, so it's, um, I don't think it's like a perfect like formula, but the things that go through our head is like, that there's definitely a question around TAM. And, uh, you know, being quite honest with you, if you talk about uh, the ambition that we have, it needs a big TAM. And so the Brazil, you know, secondary apartment TAM is just not <laughs> big enough for, for our ambition and for what we hope to build. And then you can obviously pitch to investors and say, like, hey, um, I have a LATAM view. And I think we would even get the credit for that because, you know, I, I think us being in Mexico or not is just a question of, like, getting it done, really. Um, but it's very different when you're already operating in that country. Um, so that's definitely one, one factor to the equation. It's like adding time. I think another factor is, like, there's a certain sweet spot where you do it at a point where it's still like meaningful enough for your like core business. Um, so it's not too small, like you will not look at it. And I don't know the perfect equation, but like, let's say we went to Mexico when the Mexico business would be like 1% of our top line, you know, you'll never pay attention to, 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 to Mexico uh, because it will never matter. Whatever you do there, if you do an outstanding job and you you grow five times, it will still only be 5% of your top line. And, um, and so that's something I think, um, I think about quite a bit. Um, then obviously there's questions around competition and opportunity and, you know, sometimes things rise that, that come out of that. And I think you have to be flexible in those situations. Um, and I think that's, that's also a component. Um, I, I think it's really those three factors and, there's no real perfect, I think, formula for this. And it's ultimately also an individual and personal question. Like, do you want to build a Brazil company or do you want to build a global international company? And, you know, we tried to do Mexico a year ago. We had a team. Uh, we laid everyone off because of COVID. Um, and you know, looking back, that was too early and it's probably not the right way to approach that market. So I'm like even happy it didn't work out then. Because now I get to work with Raul and with the local expertise, and we're really, really pumped about that. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have like a, I guess, a perfect decision-making framework other than you know these these factors that I mentioned. Yeah, and things are moving really quickly, right? So you've got a, the competitive landscape, got all these other variables. You snooze, you lose. Yeah. So and you and. If there's one thing that you guys do is you guys are really fast. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. um, but I will say, Florian, if I check my archive.org uh, brain and I recall you, you and Mate come over to my office in Villa Magdalena in our crappy little building. And I remember we sat down in one of our little conference rooms and you guys kind of like, I had just raised like, you know, $43 million or something. And, and it was like a, it was like a large round at the time. Everyone was like, wow, it was a big round. Now it's like a it's like a Series A plus in Brazil, right. and it was just before Juma was reelected or something. Right, you had like timed it pretty nicely. Yeah. That's right. My timing was pretty good on that. But you know, I remember you got, you guys asked me. You're like, hey, are, aren't you worried about you know raising too much money and like here, here you guys are just like making that look like peanuts. So it's it's interesting because would you say that you're like what is the driver of like increased ambition? 
And Georgie Paulo used to always say, and it's the classic you know, phrase, I probably said it three or four times on this podcast, which is cost the same to dream big and dream small. So why don't you dream big? I mean, were you just not dreaming big then? You just had an exit. It was successful. And you're worried about things like PrefStack and other things when you're raising money. And now you're just like going back to the how I started this conversation, world domination. So how does your brain go from like, okay, we're here and that's interesting. Let's be cautious in how we do that to like, man, we're going to, we're going to just transform the largest category in, in the world. Yeah, totally. So I think um, there, there's a few components to this, but I think entrepreneurship is a little bit like being an athlete and uh, you know, you, you, you practice more and you know, you, you'll go at it more and you get better. And so that's definitely one component, but there's also, there's also a really big component that is like just, you know, my personality or our personality. And the, 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 the truth is that um, by nature, I'm very, very risk averse, like very much so. You know, I was a very, you know, very afraid as a kid, very cautious as a kid. I wasn't the kid that liked, you know, extreme sports or anything. Like it was more, you know, on the cautious side by nature. And then I also didn't grow up in a, in a house or in a, an environment where, you know, crazy risk taking was encouraged. This is something that I only learned when I went to college in the States, this, this concept of, Hey, you can do anything that you set your mind to. Like the, that's a very like American, you know, concept, I think. And I had grown up in a German household, German school, you know, German friends, like that, that stuff isn't really talked about in Germany. Germany is like, Hey, you have to be average. Like you can't be really bad and you can't be really good. You just got to be average and normal. And you know, that's, that's important. And the community is important. It's like different, different things. And so when we did our first company, and even if you look at the way we, we, we took it, you know, very few people know this, but we had the offer to sell the company or the offer to raise, uh, uh, I think it was at the time five or $10 million dollars. And we took the selling the company because we were risk averse and it was important for us to have uh, success under our belts, more important than potential, like, you know, massive uncertain upside down the line. Uh, but at the same time, I think we were realistic also with the business that we had in our hands. That wasn't a business that was necessarily IPOable or had a massive amount of strategic investors interested in it. It's just, it was an okay, you know, uh, model in a in a declining industry, quite frankly. And so, I think the risk aversion kind of like went down over time. And I think if it's not within you, you have to learn how to handle the risk. And uh, the reality is that Loft wouldn't exist if Princi hadn't been successful, um, and that if I hadn't, you know, a financial, you know, cushion. Uh, to you know fall back on in case you know it didn't work out and you know as an athlete the understanding of how does venture capital work and what do my investors expect of me like is it a dividend or is it a massive outcome and once you learn these things and these pieces fall into place then all of that makes a lot more sense and you can actually do these things in a more intentional uh kind of fashion um and I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are crazy risk takers by nature. I mean, you might be one of those. Um, I, I just never wasn't. I, I, I had to learn it. And so I think every story is different, but I, I do think in our case, that was, that was the factor. And I think a big component today is we do these things because we can, uh, you know, financially, skills-wise, um, business model-wise, all of that. I think there's probably something to be said for just like when you've got a little bit of success under your belt, it allows you just to kind of, it's hard because there's that, that feeling of like, I remember thinking about going bigger and doing other things. And I was just like, I didn't want to run the risk of kind of ruining what I, the value that I built. And that's something that I think goes away eventually or maybe it doesn't go away, but you become more comfortable with that idea of like just swinging for the fences, you know, for lack of a better analogy. And, uh, and that's, you know, I think that's, it's, it's probably a more of a process. It's funny because 
I, I think about myself as like, am I a risk taker or not? And like, I don't know if I'm becoming more kind of like conservative or, or more risk willing to take the risk on, but like, I think that it's something that you kind of, you evolve and you kind of find your, you know, obviously there's other things in your life that happen, like you have a family and then it's like, you're not thinking about yourself anymore, right? Like it's, it's about other people. And so those are all things that I think are variables in, in terms of like risk profile, but it's an interesting thought. But it's, it's funny. We have a, we have a mutual friend, Kimball. You'll, yep. you'll remember Kimball. Oh yeah. And we used to talk to him a lot about this stuff and he was always like, because he, he was taking a crazy amount of risk, right? Yeah. Uh, back in the day, uh, maybe even more than, than you. And he always said like, Florian, like you don't get it. It's like, even if it fails, you want it to be big. Like you yeah. want that experience of it being big. And I didn't get why he was saying that. Um, but now, now I get it. But, you know, he was a bit older. He had already done, you know, pooltables.com, which, you know, in some ways re- reminds me of, I guess, Sprinchy. And so, you know, I guess when people go through these innings a little more and uh, get more comfortable with that, then it's easier to take that decision. Um, Although now when I see him, I think he's a very different entrepreneur from from when yeah. he was back in uh, Brazil. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I'm an investor in his company. And, you know, I remember Kimball and, you know, Davis and those guys, they were the ones that were just the high flyers when, when, when we were starting out, right? And it was like, man, how do they get Tiger on board and like all this other stuff? And so it's interesting to see these different cycles. And, and I'm, well, you're inspiring a lot of other entrepreneurs. So I want to talk about, about Loft a little bit. And... There's something that I, a very common question that I get, and I've only seen it work three times in three companies in in Latin America or in the region that I operate, and that's the co-CEO role. I would say Mickey and Wences were like the early kind of inspiration on on this that made it work. You've got the Brex guys, they've done it, and then you and Mate. So I typically advise founders to not do this, but... People are like, well, Florian and Mate do it and they're super successful at it. My understanding is that co-CEOs, but all the leadership report to you. And so you're kind of more the internal CEO and then Mate is more of this external CEO. How did you get to that configuration and tell us about the things that you've learned in your partnership? Yeah, totally. So I think um, I give the same advice, you know, even though I don't, you know, I guess practice what I preach. But it's the same thing when people ask me, like, hey, how is your partnership with Mate and how can I replicate it? And it's just not that easily replicable, right? Um, I know a lot of people would like to have, you know, a partnership like we do, but it's it's not it's it's not that easy just to copy and paste it. Um, the same way there's other strong partnerships out there that I'd love to replicate, you know, either by the number of partners or by the amount of years and you know, we'll see if, you know, we'll be able to replicate that uh, or or not. It's just rare. It's just rare. It probably compounds, right? I mean, going oh, back totally. to Mate's statement, I mean, massively, right? Massively. And, um, you know, I think that's the thing that helps you go through the ups and downs. It's, you know, not that different from, you know, a personal relationship. It's very similar dynamics. But, um, you know, we know well. It's uh, it's difficult also in personal relationships and most don't work out statistically. And so it's like, I think it's like this concept of, you know, I'd like to have that, but it's not, not that easy. And it's similar, I think, with the co-CEO. I think it's very specific circumstances. Actually, the way it works in practice is very similar than a, than a, than a loft with some chain differences. Like we're not like the technical founders that Enrique and Pedro are, ah, but it's very similar in the sense that like the way that Enrique looks more outwards and Enrique is, Enrique is more outward facing and, and Pedro is more inward facing. And, you know, uh, the reason we do it this way is because in our previous company, Princhi, we split the team 50-50. And that was really bad because it was like basically a constant, you know, battle and escalation of issues and, you know, the teams playing us against each other and just didn't, didn't work that well. Um, and so we found this model where, you know, I look more inwards and the team reports into me. And then theoretically, I report into Mate. And the reality is, in the more traditional sense, I'm more of a president or a COO. 
and Matt is probably more of a CEO in the Silicon Valley, uh, you know, parlance. Uh, but as you know, for Brazil, that doesn't really <laughs> work that well. Mate é o CEO e eu sou o presidente. It's just weird, right? Um, yeah. And people don't really get that. So you kind of have to, you know, adjust and adapt. And the same way, I guess, when we, you know, speak to investors, it's also weird. It's like, I'm not, I don't really report to Mate. Like we're, we're peers, right? We're partners. We're like 50-50 on the stuff. Um And, uh, and I think one of the things that this co-CEO title gives you is like a lot of flexibility of like, you know, jumping in and out and substituting for each other, like, you know, um, dividing and conquering, if you will. And I think that works really well for us, but I think it's rare. And what I will also say is I think it's an evolving thing. You know, it might be this way now, but as the organization grows and gets more complex and different things are needed, it might change again. Um, and, uh, Ultimately, I think one of the things that at least I always carry myself, I carry carry with me, is this notion of doing whatever is necessary for the company. Uh, so, you know, I'm currently co-CEO, but if I'm, you know, more value added in another part of the org or running another project, or I'm 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 willing and fine to do whatever is needed for us to be to be successful ultimately. And um, so I think. I think it's more of that. And what you learn over time is also the relative strengths and weaknesses of each other. Um, then there's a component of enjoyment. Like, what do you what do you enjoy doing? Um, this is a really interesting concept uh, in, in Japan called Ikigai. I'm not huge in, hugely into it, but it makes a lot of sense. And it's just like these four bubbles. Like, what are you good at? What the world needs? What you can make money for? And there's another one that I forget now. And Ikigai is basically the... I, I should know because it's in my book also. Yeah. I haven't read the end of my book. <laughs> Maybe not. I think with your book, quite honestly, I don't I don't think I've read it other than like Googling myself. And yeah, I yeah. It. <laughs> seeing you're, you're, you're in the book. Uh, no, but it's, it's, it's great that you mentioned the, the Ikigai. That's actually a concept that I talk about at the end of my book. It's something that, you know, really struck a chord with me in terms of like how it resonates with me. I think that the four things that you know you mentioned, it's what the world needs, how you can make money or have a profession, what you can get paid for, what you're good at, and what you love. And that's the intersection of mission, vocation, profession, and passion. And so at the center of that is your, your key guy. And I, I also yeah. really love that concept. Yeah, I'm not hugely into it. I saw it once or twice. An entrepreneur mentioned it to me once, and I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's hard. It's just really, really hard <laughs> to, 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 to find. And, but one of the beautiful things, I think, is in terms of being an entrepreneur is like you can create Ikigai for yourself. And I know for me, for example, like I don't need to be CEO to reach Ikigai. It's just like not you know, what drives me ultimately. Um, and so I, I really like this concept in Portuguese of ser and estar, mm -hmm. like in... in In English, it would be like, it's hard to translate, but it's like being transitory or permanently, you know, and uh, I think I'm transitorily CEO or co-CEO and eventually, you know, I won't be whatever the company needs, really. Um, and so, so I think that's the, another feature of our partnership is like, it's fluid and what's happening today doesn't necessarily need to happen next week. Um, so it's kind of that that stuff but there's definitely a compounding component to like the speed of trust and totally i mean you take charlie munger and warren buffett right like to me that's the quintessential partnership that has lasted decades and obviously the fruits of that are pretty expressive so i think that's something that you guys have built a great partnership and you've you know the test of time you're going on you know 10 years now and you start finishing each other's sentences You know, that's something that you don't have to even say something and you kind of know what the other person's thinking. And we all know speed totally. is, is the ultimate competitive advantage. Yeah, and the speed is in really in the decision-making. I always find it funny. You know, I see it very often in, in Brazil and Ladam, the decision-making around the partners is, you know, a collegiate. And, I, and I, I don't mean to sound dismissive in terms of like having a debate and you know, escalating these things, but... Uh, You, you got to be able to make decisions. And I think it's incredible 
what we've been able to do in terms of reach, in terms of impact, in terms of compounding, just by the fact that we can take decisions for each other. So I'll give you an example, but, you know, we'll invest in a company like Brian introduced us to an amazing company somewhere. You know, uh, we do our angel investment 50-50. I can pull the trigger on, you know, a million dollars for the both of of us if if I want to. Uh, without talking to him, like, hey, are you okay doing this deal? Like, what do you think? It, 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 just, it, it just happens and vice versa, right? Uh, we might check with each other, like, hey, is it, is it okay for it to be such a big check kind of thing? Uh, but if we're talking about our, our average check range, like, there's no, there's no back and forth. It just, it just happens because we know it's competitive, because we know it's important to be, like, a unified front to the entrepreneur because we want to build this reputation of being money good and fast which by the way drives a lot of what we do at canary and always have done and will continue to do uh and there we do it you know at a lot even larger scale so it's this kind of stuff um that i think is very important and might there be the one time out of 100 where that creates a problem yeah then we'll just talk about it figure Mm -hmm. it out Uh, but there will be 99 times where it's very very positive that's awesome, man. Well, listen, closing out here with the last question, you'd mentioned entrepreneurs have a personal brand. What do you want your personal brand to stand for in 10 years? Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great question. You know, I think, I think about this a lot. And I think the story that I'm trying to build for myself and I guess call it like my legacy is I want to, I want to be this entrepreneur that helps other people prosper, you know, um, and whether that's like an employee at Loft or an entrepreneur that's getting backed by Canary or someone else that I helped, you know, with a startup idea, uh, I'd like to be, you know, a driving force and helping others prosper or whether it's, you know, my cleaning lady that's using, boozer and making her life better because that company exists because i invested in it i think it's this concept of increasing the pie for everyone and prospering by doing so and of course you know being a part of that prosperity myself too um i think it's really the legacy i'd like to leave behind uh eventually and i think being an entrepreneur at loft and investor canary today is the best use of my time and energy and eventually it might be, you know, slightly different. Uh, but for now, for now, that's where I think I'm most, most icky guy. <laughs> awesome, man. We'll, we'll, we'll end it there. Thanks so much for making the time. I know you got a lot going on. I heard the WhatsApp messages just started getting fired off. So I'll let you get back to, to, to real work, but you know, it's always a pleasure and it's really impressive what you guys have been able to do and fun to see it all happen. And so thanks a lot for making the time. Absolutely. No, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Florian Hagenbuch, founder and co-CEO of Loft. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.